0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. We have a very special guest on today's show, Xin Yi Lim, Senior Director of Corporate Development at Ping Doo. She is responsible for Ping international corporate strategy efforts. As most of you know, the growth story of Ping has been described as miraculous. It's the fastest growing e commerce scale up in China, cracking the renminbi 1 trillion, which is about 141 billion USD, in transactions milestone in less than half the time it took. Alibaba and JD. That, alongside a few other numbers, tells the story of an irresistible force shaking up China's e-commerce landscape. If you took that story to the bank and picked up PDD shares at IPO, you'd be up 150% right now. Needless to say, this was all a story we were very excited to dig into. We talked to Xinyi about interactive e-commerce and PDD's backstory and differentiating factors, and discuss observable trends in consumer behavior. We also talk about which of those shifting behavioral trends will be temporary or permanent and why. We also discuss Ping du long-term growth strategy in the coming months and into next year and their plans for international expansion. Enjoy.
1: So one trend that we've tapped upon is actually uh, you know what we call C 2 M, or cons- consumer to manufacturer. So um, China is the manufacturing hub of the world, right? There's a lot of manufacturing capacity in China, and there are a lot of uh, these manufacturers who historically may have just been filling export orders. So these manufacturers, at the same time, are also trying to pivot more towards facing domestic demand, and they actually have you know a lot of that know-how accumulated over years and are able to produce goods that are extremely
0: Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Shin Yi, thanks for coming on the show today. Really appreciate your time.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: So why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. So um, I'm Shin Yi Lim. I am the Senior Director of Corporate Development at Pinduoduo, which I joined in late October 2018. Uh, Prior to that, I was a technology analyst working for Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, GIC,
0: in both Singapore as well as New York. Why don't we start with telling us what is interactive e-commerce?
1: Yeah. Interactive e-commerce is a relatively new term, right? So um, when people hear it, they don't really know what it entails. Um, So I think it's probably easier to think about it in contrast to traditional or more conventional e-commerce that you and I might be more used to, which is, you know, you um, often have something in mind that you want to buy. It's more efficiency oriented. Right, and then you pull up, you know, either Amazon or Taobao or whatever it may be, and you go, you know, input something into the search bar, right? So it's more a targeted, um, solitary kind of shopping behavior that is also ultimately a bit more efficiency driven. So this is something that I think uh, e-commerce in all its evolution over the past two decades has done pretty well, right? In terms of helping people uh, who know what they want to buy, find those things uh, relatively quickly and efficiently. But when you think about our typical offline shopping behavior, it's not always like that, right? So there are times when you're in the shopping mall, you're just hanging out with your friends and family. And sometimes, you know, as you walk around, as you look at things, right, there may be something that catches your eye, maybe catches your friend's eyes, and you have a, a conversation, right? Like, Oh, do you think that would look good on me? Right. Like, Oh, what is that thing? Like, Oh, it looks pretty fun. Right. And like, Oh yeah, I got one of those things. And like, it's really nifty. You should try it. So there's actually a lot of that element uh, that's missing in conventional e-commerce, right? Because you don't get the interaction. You don't get the feedback from friends uh, or inputs from friends, right. Who may have considered a similar purchase decision, right. Or who may have actually um, a, a better sense of, Oh yeah, uh, I tried this, I tried that, maybe this thing would work better for your needs because they know you probably much better than, say, an algorithm uh, on an uh, online shopping website would, right? So interactive e-commerce is trying to understand, uh, you know, human needs uh, through the community that surrounds each and every one of us, right? So when we designed Pinduoduo, uh we created this uh, team purchase model, right, whereby, you know, if you buy together with a friend, uh, or, or, somebody else in your social network, you could actually enjoy a lower price. So this naturally incentivizes people to share with each other, but at the same time, right, because, uh, these, these are your friends, these are your social contacts, uh, you would also know, uh, probably, you know, something is more suited, uh, to be sent to a, a particular person, right? And for instance, um, you know, if, uh, you and I, uh, are, are both friends, um, you know, I wouldn't be sending you a recommendation, for lipstick, right? Unless maybe I know you're looking for a gift for your wife, right? So that could be, that could be one reason why. So this is um, kind of pretty central, I think, to the shopping experience on Pintuotuo, right? Whereby, you know, as you browse, right? And it is uh, driven around an interactive feed. Right. It's a mobile-first and mobile-only platform, and it is driven around a feed very much like Facebook. Right? So as you're browsing, as you're exploring, you can see, oh, certain products or certain shops have been um, you know, given good reviews by your friends. We've also introduced new features whereby um, you could actually have a further curated uh, community of friends uh, whom you share even more information with, or you can actually get advice from them directly inside the app, right? You could send them a message and say, like, oh, has anybody, you know, bought one of those two-seater prams? Uh, You know, what is a good brand, right? Or, you know, uh, what's the lightest one that you've come across or whatever it is? And, And people can interact in real time. And, and feed that information to each other and help each other find the right product in a more uh, enjoyable as well as still efficient way.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the backstory of how PDD, if you mind me calling it that, door started where it came from and then in, in, in the founders, uh, how they got it off the ground. And then maybe talk to us a little bit more about how the platform works, if there's more to be said, size of the user base, size of the company, where you're based, stuff like that.
1: Sure. So Pinduoduo was founded in 2015, uh, and our first uh, incarnation was actually as Huo. So we were a first-party uh, platform that was focused on selling um, fruit and fresh produce. So um, our founders, um, you know, they worked together in a variety of uh, prior startups. So although uh, Pinduoduo today is only about four years old, um, our founding team, uh, as well as the bench directly beneath them, they've actually worked together uh, for over 10 plus years, right? So our founder, Colin Huang, he is an ex-Googler. So he was actually, um, you know, one of the first waves of uh, Googlers to come into China. So we worked together with Dr. Kai-Fu Lee and uh, Pin Duo when he founded um, Pin Duoduo's uh, prior incarnation, Pin Hao Huo, in 2015, it started with an observation that, you know, even though, right, already in 2015, uh, there were larger and more established e-commerce players, he felt that this was not going to be, you know, the final state of e-commerce in China and that there was something that was still um, lacking, right? So looking at the landscape in 2015, there were a few things that were different from, say, you know, back in the early 2000s when the other players got started. So for one, um, you know, WeChat had already become, uh, the prevalent uh, mode of communication across the entire country. So whether you were somebody who's living in a lower tier city or somebody who's living in Beijing, right, everybody uh, uses WeChat, right. So it's like the common denominator that everybody uses to communicate. Mm-hmm. And um, the internet uh, penetration, right, the mobile penetration was also extremely high, right, such that mm-hmm. actually everybody all across the country could get online reliably and be on this common platform of WeChat. Now, at the same time, uh, in 2014 and 2015, WeChat Pay and Alipay also had a very high profile uh, kind of red packet campaign Mm -hmm. where actually a lot of uh, people in China who previously didn't really have a mobile wallet or didn't know what an e-wallet was suddenly became owners of e-wallets that had some money in it, right? So it's like you suddenly had a massive uh, population of people all with some spare change to spend but not quite sure where they could go to spend it right because the network of merchants accepting these modes of payment was nowhere as uh, widespread or as ubiquitous as it is today in china Mm -hmm. now we were also observing that you know for e-commerce Even though certain categories, like for instance, electronics had a relatively high uh, penetration rate, right? Today, you know, nearly one in three TVs sold in China is bought online. Um, But for agricultural produce, for fruit, uh, that online penetration rate is extremely low. Right. This is also the case in the U.S., right, where grocery penetration is actually historically low mm-hmm, prior mm-hmm. to this uh, pandemic outbreak. Yeah. So this was an area where they felt like, okay, you know, even though people may think e-commerce is already kind of red ocean, actually for um, the, the fresh produce category, this is something where it's still relatively blue ocean, right? There's uh, a lot of potential for growth. At the same time, the price uh, of each product is relatively low. So, you know, for people to take a chance and spend 20 RMB on buying some fruit on a platform they hadn't heard of uh, is probably a bit of an easier sell, right? Than trying to get that same person to spend 200 or 2000 RMB buying electronics. At the same time, it's a perishable good in that, you know, you know, if you, if you consume the apples, you get through it in a certain period of time, you do have to replenish. Hmm. So this naturally builds in a very high repeat purchase frequency. Mm-hmm. So this was why they picked uh, this segment to start out with. And then as we grew rapidly, we evolved from a first party platform to also having a third party offering selling other goods because we figured, well, you know, if I'm already dealing with, uh, you know, 200 million shoppers, right, which was where we had got to uh, in 2017, then why don't I actually just uh, ramp that up, right? Why don't I start to target actually um, you know, a wider array of goods that these same people could potentially want to buy mm-hmm. the next time they come here to browse for their fruit. So in the span of just four plus years, we've grown to become the second largest e-commerce platform in China with close to 600 million annual active buyers, right? So we had 585 million annual active buyers at the end of 2019, uh, of which we had 482 million uh, monthly active users. And we crossed the uh, $1 trillion RMB GMB mark in uh, the December quarter in 2019. So that's approximately 145 billion USD GMB over the last 12 months in 2019.
0: I mean, those are just staggering numbers, especially for for a guy in Canada, for instance, <laughs> uh, to be able to wrap my head around uh, just how much and how active that is. Is, is there... Any other way that you can describe how you're different uh, from the other e commerce platforms, either in acquisition or retention or uh, any other form that you are differentiating yourselves?
1: sure so i think the fundamental differentiation that we start from right is an understanding that you know people's needs can be very dynamic and it can be influenced by those around them so uh, when we first started we actually hardly spent anything on sales and marketing right because we, we understood that well for people um you know everybody has their own network of friends right no matter how big or small And, um, you know, you would have something in common with your friends and you would know uh, what interests your friends most likely. And if you can both save money at the same time through a team purchase, uh, you are actually incentivized to help us acquire users, right? So this was how we managed to kind of almost bootstrap ourselves with very little sales and marketing spend in the early days. Because for users who wanted to benefit from getting, say, you know, apples at 20% off, they would be sending the links to the networks, right? And in the early days, before we got to the skill that we had, the team size that you needed to form a team purchase uh, would have been larger, right? So it could have been 20 people, 10 people. Gradually, as we got bigger, the requirement for the team size also came down. So today, uh, you just need two people to form that team purchase, right? But that whole element of sharing with friends, right, a, a good deal that you found, uh, it also works because uh, we, we understand that people's needs um, are actually fungible at times in that you know maybe today you say okay i want to buy some fruit for my family but you don't necessarily have a very fixed or rigid idea of like it has to be you know ten dollars worth of apples right i'm i'm only gonna buy that if i came by and i told you like hey you know hey Todd, you know for ten dollars you could actually get uh um, bananas at like a 20 percent discount today and then that to you could be like okay you know it also fulfills your need for fruit And it's a good deal. So why not? So in that instance, we basically combine uh, your demand and my demand, right? But it now goes to one merchant. Right. Instead of the two of us having disparate, uh, you know, demands, and then that materializes in different times with different merchants. So that it gets dispersed, which is the conventional e commerce model. Mm-hmm. When we actually have that aggregation together, the benefit to the merchant is even though, you know, he's still shipping out two packages of bananas, one to you and one to me, he actually gets a greater volume of orders in a much shorter span of time. And so this also translates to benefits for the merchant, for the upstream, right? Mm -hmm. So whether he's a manufacturer, right, he could actually uh, better tweak his uh, processing or manufacturing uh, uh, methods, right? Or if he is actually uh, just a distributor, like say the fruit seller, but he actually has a better sense of like, wow, okay, you know, this is my my hit SKU, right? Maybe I should just be, you know, uh, procuring more of this SKU right, getting it at an even better price, which I could then pass on to the consumers to drive an even greater volume. So, those are things that I think uh, we we started out with a very uh, fundamentally different view on from our peers, right? Because we we realized that actually for people, right, you can influence the things that they want to buy and you can do it at the same time such that they they find it fun, right? They find it engaging. Mm -hmm. So, our slogan is actually uh, more savings, more fun. So, that value for money angle is pretty central to um, our value proposition. And we always stress that, you know, value for money doesn't necessarily mean something is cheap, right? Value for money is a relative concept. As long as you're getting something for what you perceive, right? Relatively speaking at a Lower price than what you expect to pay, then that's great value, right? So whether you're buying something that's expensive or has the same functionalities as a more expensive product, but you're paying a lower price, right? So in that situation, it's great value. So this is something that uh, you know is pretty central to our value proposition. And then a more fun element comes in in terms of you know how we design the interface. Uh, we have games also on our platform, so people come to our platform knowing that it's it's a place where they could just browse right you can just have fun you can just relax and so um, you know even if you don't have a targeted specific thing that you want to buy you might still be uh, prompted to just open up the pdd app right and maybe you're playing a game but in the course of playing a game on the platform uh you might get a prompt right for more uh, water droplets on total orchard, right? Browse this page or make a purchase on okay. this page. Yeah. And so it's seamlessly all woven in there. And, and obviously if, um, we, you know, do our jobs right in terms of really uh, fine tuning our algorithms to decipher from right, people's behavior, what they're interested in each time I have an interaction with you, even if I'm just asking you like, Hey Todd, just browse this page. Right. How you behave on that page, how long you linger on each listing, each different product that's shown to you in that page is also a data point to us. And that feeds into how we then present the next recommendation feed to you. Right. And so ultimately that drives better conversion as well.
0: For sure. And obviously, given those massive numbers that you told us before you must be collecting and observing a tremendous amount of data what are you seeing from that data what are the trends what are you know if you could talk to us a little bit about demographic trends product trends um, device trends payment trends what can you tell us about some of the trends that you're observing with all that data that you have on hand
1: Sure. So uh, one thing that we're seeing is that I think, you know, for years, people um, just kind of had this uh, narrative about the Chinese consumer uh, being on a path for consumption upgrade. right? But I think uh, what we're also seeing is the evolution right, of uh, that consumption behavior. So it's more rational consumption. Um, so what that means is that you know even as you may be uh, thinking about yeah I want to pamper myself I want to buy something that's good uh, at the same time that consumer is also looking. Uh, for value for money goods, right? How can I still achieve my goals but do it in a savvy uh, way, right, in terms of managing my finances? So one trend that we've tapped upon is actually uh, you know, what we call C2M or cons- consumer to manufacturer. So um, China is the manufacturing hub of the world, right? There's a lot of manufacturing capacity in China and there are a lot of uh, these manufacturers who historically may have just been filling export orders. So these manufacturers Manufacturers at the same time are also trying to pivot more towards facing domestic demand, and they actually have you know, a lot of that know-how accumulated over years and are able to produce goods that are of extremely good quality. It's just that they don't have that foreign brand label on them right? So the Chinese consumer today is also getting much more savvy and aware, right? That there are these goods out there. And so on our platform, we've actually launched a new brand initiative where we work with over a hundred such manufacturers in terms of developing their brand, as well as developing the right product suited to the domestic Chinese consumer. So we are actually able to uh, feed some of their insights, right, on our consumer preferences, right, on an anonymized, aggregated basis that, like, hey, you know, if you're a manufacturer making robot vacuum cleaners, well, guess what, right? For most of the robot vacuum cleaner purchases that we see on our platform, right, a certain percentage of them, uh, they tend to fall in this medium price range. Um, so maybe these are sort of the more beginner users. They would prioritize something that has more basic functionality. And so then that manufacturer can tailor a better product that's Suited to the consumer. Now, at the same time, uh, when we look at the actual sales data, obviously we see that these white label goods are selling very well, uh, and we also see that for the consumers on our platform, right? Some people have a certain perception that you know, Pinduoduo only serves the lower tier cities, or Pinduoduo only serves like you know, middle aged uh, tamas or ayes, right? All looking to, to buy you know, cheap goods. Uh, that's actually not true, right? Eighty percent of our shoppers are under thirty five years old. Uh, And um, in November last year, 45% of our GMV actually came from first and second tier cities, right? So in terms of our user base, it is actually, I would say, uh, pretty representative of um, the typical um, kind of a shopper crowd, right, that people would have in mind when they look at the other platforms. Uh, it's, a, it's a relatively useful group of people. The distribution of the users mirrors the population distribution of China. And at the same time, what we're observing between these different groups of people is that, you know, for the folks in the lower tier cities, what Pindodo offers is the ability to browse different categories of goods uh, or a wider selection of goods than what's available in their offline stores right? So the lower tier city users are actually uh, pretty adventurous when it comes to buying things that for them is an upgrade, right? So for instance, over the Lunar New Year period last year, uh, we sold a lot of coffee makers to the folks in the lower tier cities. Now conversely, actually a lot of the uh, people who are buying the fruit online on our platform, these are the people coming from the first and second tier cities, right? Because this is where uh, they actually see a relative value, right? You know, versus going to the fruit stall uh, in the first and second tier city where, you you know, those, those operators also do have to pay rent. Mm-hmm. And then when we look at um, sort of branded goods on our platform, right, certain things like, for instance, MAC lipsticks, um, Dyson hair dryers, these also sell very well. And I think it's a reflection of, you know, there are certain goods where uh, there's, there's clear, I guess, product innovation, right? Like with the Dyson hair dryer, people are willing to pay up for that. Mm-hmm. And then for certain goods where, you know, it's a relative upgrade for that consumer, right? Oh, I've, I've never had a coffee maker. Like, oh, you know, I never even thought of buying a robot vacuum cleaner, Mm -hmm. right? Having an array of goods that are also kind of at a more affordable price point actually widens the addressable market, right? Because now if, you know, the the price point for this good is uh, lower than say what you traditionally associate it with, right? When you go to the shopping mall and you see like, yeah, if it's a, you know, a a certain foreign brand uh, robot vacuum cleaner, it would be in the few thousands of RMB, but, hey, on Pinduoduo, I can get one for under 300 RMB. That cost is not too much off versus, say, a handheld vacuum cleaner. So why not give it a try? So we're also seeing some TAM expansion, right, in, in those categories of goods, like, say, electric toothbrushes, uh, you know, robot vacuum cleaners, uh, coffee makers, whereby the consumers who historically have not consumed these products are able to try consuming that for the first time because there are these kind of more wallet-friendly uh, options that are available to the And then when we look at the uh, younger users on our platform, they're also very trendy, they're very savvy. And so most recently for Mother's Day, uh, it was somewhat surprising to me, at at least, right, that of our top 10 bestsellers list, right, while there were sort of your more typical things, like for instance, uh, skincare uh, or lipstick, right, to to buy for your mom, Mm -hmm. right, one of the things that also was... uh, uh, trending was we we had robot vacuum cleaners and we had massage guns right so for mm. our young shoppers right clearly i think they they are, are thinking about more uh, you know uh, fancy uh, at the same time still value for money goods that they can buy for their mothers right like something to take the load off of them something to help them relax and so these are things that we're seeing on our platform
0: i wanted to ask maybe a question about how trends may have changed either temporarily or permanently due to uh, COVID-19. Did you see any shifts that, now that China has come out of it, any shifts in, in consumer taste of preferences or, or purchasing habits that uh, change that might be just simply temporary? Or have you seen any shifts in, in product uh, uh, verticals or anything that you think may have actually been kind of nudged off uh, of where they were before the pandemic to a permanent new position?
1: Yeah. So I I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, we started off as a platform selling agricultural produce. And to this this day, we actually do still sell uh, quite a lot of agricultural goods. So um, in the full year of 2019, uh, we sold about 136 billion RMB worth, Uh, of agricultural goods. So that constituted about 13.5% of our total GMB. Um, Now this actually, yeah. So, I mean, we saw that actually with the uh, COVID-19 disruption, agricultural goods continue to be a very strong performer Mm -hmm. on our platform, Mm -hmm. right? So our sense is that there are people who historically, uh, maybe they, they knew that you could buy these things online, but they just weren't Nudge, right? They weren't really pushed to do that until sort of COVID 19 happened. Everybody was locked down at home and you kind of were forced, right, to try all these things. And so, uh, one thing that we did, uh, um, we also launched our live streaming um, offering on our platform. Uh, We launched it early part of this year, but it really ramped up, uh, I would say, during the COVID 19 period as well, because in lieu of that physical interaction that you might have had in the offline store previously, right? right, Either with the fishmonger or the fruit seller. Mm -hmm. uh, Now, you know, you're stuck at home, you have to do it remotely, right? So one way that people actually gain some confidence and build that trust is through live streaming, Mm -hmm. right? So the farmer can actually uh, stream to you and show like, look, this is my uh, orchard, right? This is how I grow my oranges. I'm just, you know, plucking it off the tree right now. This is the size of the orange versus the size of my hand or whatever it is. So that helps to give people some comfort and encourage them to to try that um, online shopping of agricultural goods. So I think um, sort of that shift towards more grocery, more agricultural goods purchasing online, uh, I think that is something that was really accelerated by COVID-19. Uh, and then another trend that we've seen is also around, um, say, fitness products, right? So, like yoga mats, uh, you know, weights. Right. Uh, people are basically also being a bit more cautious, right? And then they've also realized while, you know, being quarantined at home that, yeah, you, you can actually do a lot of these home fitness things, right? So, people uh, have have bought uh, these uh, types of like, equipment. Um, during the COVID-19 period, uh, one of our best sellers uh, was also – Apart from the fitness equipment, uh, was also um, egg beaters and uh, uh, sort of like these uh, yes, little I kitchen appliances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because and now you know people are realizing that like, hey, you know, I maybe it's safer for me to just make my own meals instead of you know ordering uh, takeaway, right? Because right. you don't really know how that's been uh, produced or how that's been handled on route to your home. So, uh, you know, people have unlocked newfound cooking skills Mm -hmm. uh, or or lack thereof, right, with uh, different kind of hacks. And so, uh, you know, the the sort of like small cooking appliances uh, also had a lift uh, during the COVID-19 period. Now, I think um, after sort of the easing of the lockdown restrictions uh, so far in China, um, I think there's a slow recovery in the restaurant sector, right? So it seems like a lot of people are still preferring to make their own meals, bringing those those meals to the office to eat uh, versus you know ordering takeaway like they would have in the past. So we also saw a pickup in the sale of things like uh, lunch boxes, right, uh, or this um, the sort of uh, reusable mm-hmm. uh, single person uh, cutlery sets.
0: Xinyi, may I ask from the PDD perspective? You help a lot of brands and a lot of vendors and a lot of merchants, you help them grow. How is PDD gonna grow? What growth strategies, what tactics are you going to be employing in the near future to continue your meteoric growth because you are such a young company but have grown so huge so fast?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think for us, it does come back to the users first, right? So that's very much the orientation of our company. We are always thinking about what do our users want, what do they need, and then you know how fast can we go build it? So I think so far, uh, while we're pleased with our success, uh, I think there's still a lot of low-hanging fruit that we can literally do, right? Because for our 585 million users today, uh, there may still be products that they want that are not available on our platform, right? So I think in the very near term, something that we'll continue to do is to also broaden our reach right, to merchants, whether domestically or overseas. So, for instance, uh, in November last year, we had a tie-up with Amazon. Right around Black Friday sales. So we were able to bring in a lot of the uh, products uh, from Amazon.cn uh, onto our platform, right, and make it available for our users. So our users were able to buy, you know, skincare products uh, from Germany. They were able to buy Calvin Klein clothing from the US through this partnership. And I think that's really an example where, you know, we, we continue to think about how we can have uh, a kind of a maximum effect right and really improve the shopping experience of our users but to do it in uh, i guess more creative and innovative ways right because mm-hmm. uh, for us even though you know we're just a, a 4 year company we still feel like uh, we should we should be running uh faster right we should we mm-hmm. still feel like there's a lot more that we can be doing and i think when it comes to um you know, potentially uh, other products or other kind of shopping experiences, I think we're still uh, keeping a fairly open mind. Uh, we typically tend to be a bit more cautious on our uh, investment strategy, right? So we recently made our first uh, big investment, which was in uh, Gome, right? So uh, we basically have this partnership that we've begun with them whereby they will help us uh, design some products right, that are suited to our uh, domestic consumers. So back to that C2M point that I highlighted earlier, C2M is really a longer term trend that we see, uh, you know, continuing across multiple uh, industry segments. right? And this is something that I think our peers have also recognized. right? So we don't think it's uh, one of those situations where it's a winner takes all because the opportunity is sufficiently large for everybody to jump in right and help these domestic manufacturers design better more suitable goods uh, for domestic consumers so that's something that i think uh, you know will continue for quite some time and then at the same time uh, for uh, with the electronics, right? That's also a category where sometimes I think having the physical presence still makes a difference, right? Uh, and it's also handy to uh, have that established kind of um, network of, you know, distributors or stores as well as people who can provide the after-sales service or any issues with installation, you know, you know exactly where to turn to in your location, right? So I think that is also further along the path of us trying to instill in the users um, the sense that, yeah, you know, actually, uh, I can just go to PDD for whatever it is that I want to buy, right? Whether it's something as small as, you know, an orange, or whether it's something as big or bulky as, say, you know, uh, an air conditioner, right, or a fridge, etc. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's a path that we'll continue down on, right, to build up uh, that that trust uh, in, between the users and our platform, as well as to, you know, further enhance their user satisfaction.
0: I know you you talked a little bit about uh, some of the cross-border, some of the stuff outside China. How earnestly, at such a young age that that PDD is, how earnestly would you be looking at gaining some markets outside of of China? Um, What markets would you potentially be um, targeting first if you are already looking outside China?
1: Yeah, so I would say right now at the moment, we're not um, actively looking outside China. And I think it's stemming from, I think, one just respecting that, you know, different markets have different kind of dynamics and consumer preferences. And what works in China doesn't necessarily always just translate wholesale Mm -hmm. uh, to another market. Right. So I think in China, we were very fortunate to sort of be at the right place at the right time. Right. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned earlier when we were started in 2015, the e-commerce uh, ecosystem had already been in existence for, for quite some time and was relatively developed, right, in that a lot of investment had gone into building up logistics in the decade prior to our arrival on the market, right? A lot of consolidation had happened. A lot of improvements in the logistics, um, sort of speed and quality of service, had already taken place. Such that you know, to persuade somebody who's not uh, an e-commerce shopper or someone who's not an active e-commerce shopper to give it a try, well, at least you you start off with the understanding or the expectation that, yeah, you know, I can expect my packages to arrive in decent time and in decent shape, right? So why not, right? At the same time, you know, for the 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 mobile wallet development, right? Having, uh, WeChat pay, having Alipay become extremely pervasive throughout the country. Uh, that was also something that helped, right? Because that meant that anybody could potentially be a customer of ours. Right. And then having everybody on a common communication platform, uh, like WeChat, uh, would be something where, you know, it's already, uh, pretty, uh, I would say pretty established, right? We didn't have to go out and like seed the market and say like, hey, everybody download this brand new app and then use that app to share things with your friends, right? Mm -hmm. There's already the app. It's called WeChat and WeChat had a very um, open um, um, sort of uh, uh, open position uh, towards uh, you know embracing third parties, right? Allowing third parties to actually share information, and at, at least it still happens on the WeChat platform, right? Mm-hmm. So that's something that I think is very helpful in the China situation. The only probable like uh, closest international peer that I can think of would be say WhatsApp. Right. And I think we have seen some interesting uh, innovations, uh, for instance, in in India and in other countries around the world where people have tried to leverage uh, uh, WhatsApp, right, for e commerce. Um, But I think for us, um, you know, when we think about entering these other markets, uh, we're always mindful of kind of, you know, what, what are the preferences of the consumers there, right? What consumers there perhaps be. Uh, less willing to share with their friends uh, in exchange for savings or would consumers perhaps have a bit more uh, you know concerns right around say uh, who gets to see what they're sharing uh, etc and so that may sort of hinder their um, Mm. path to adoption and then just off on the consumer end right and then on the infrastructure end, you know what is uh, the state of infrastructure development uh, both physical and digital in in those markets
0: well, I think I think that's 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 good self awareness. I think for Ping Duoduo to understand that the foundation um, that it was built on, um, the current uh, state of existence on, on infrastructure and culture and, and purchasing and and mobile penetration depth and depth and the culture of China in general around e commerce is all playing such important factors that aren't currently. As you see it, transferable to other markets, given their cultures, their technologies, their patterns and behaviors. Correct? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's great. And you know what? You have the luxury of being in the biggest market in the world already, so I don't think you have to worry about it for uh, for some time.
1: Yeah, I think we still see a lot of opportunity in China, and I think you know every day we're uncovering new insights, right, about our consumers, the sort of things that they're interested in. And I think, you know, ultimately what we, we envision ourselves to be is also a, a platform that, uh, learns and grows with the consumer, right? Because one thing we're aware of is that, you know, the consumer today, right? Maybe, um, you know, she's a, uh, 25 year old, uh, young working professional, um, Her priorities at this time may be very different from, say, two years down the line when she becomes uh, a new mom, right? When she has a young child to take care of. And then her interest in different categories may have changed, right? Her willingness to spend on certain categories may have changed. So this is uh, something that we we still see a lot of potential, right, in terms of us building our ability to understand, uh, to adapt, and even to some extent try and preempt, right, and show the consumer the right thing at the right time. And I think going... into the rest of the world, that's going to be another huge learning uh, experiment, right? Whereby we also have to uh, really plan for the long-term and make sure that, you know, we we really have all the uh, prerequisites in place and that we are able to really have a long-term commitment to be able to be successful in a new market.
0: Yi Lim, Senior Director, Corporate Development at Door. Thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you for all your insights. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for coming on the show.
1: Same here. Thanks for having me.
0: Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with.